Hebrews 4.12, it describes God's word as living, active, powerful, and sharp. It operates with surgical precision. It pierces us to the heart. It exposes our motives and our thoughts. And it doesn't just give us a flesh wound to irritate us, but it it touches our our souls, our conscience. It speaks to our heart. Um, And God's words, they wound to promote healing. If they ever wound you, it's to that end. It's so that we would repent. So we would recognize our sin and we would turn from it and be healed, be saved. And you could compare sin to a deadly infection that uh, the abscess has to come out before the healing can begin. And uh, when I went with the mission team to Cambodia, we saw the effects of poor dental hygiene among many of the people there. And some had been given medicine but the medicine, of course, the antibiotics, it only worked for a short while because that, that pocket underneath the tooth would just become infected again. The tooth had to be removed, or they had to have a uh, root canal, but in the bush, you're not going to be giving root canals. So that bad tooth has to come out if you're going to have healing, if there's going to be a relief. And in the same way, sin that God identifies in his word it has to be dealt with. It has to be removed before the healing and restoration can begin. And I was always sad when kids would come and, and they might even have a needle, but they were too afraid of the dentist or they were in so much pain they didn't even want their teeth to be touched and they left in pain. That the grandmother would say, you've got to stay, you've got to get your tooth out. And go, oh, but it hurts. And it did hurt. But it was going to keep hurting unless it was removed. And once removed, man, they could sleep at night. I remember a boy who came in last time and he had... I don't know, for months have been crying himself to sleep every night. His tooth just hurt so bad. He gritted through it. You know, he, he had the needle. He's white-knuckling, sweating. But as soon as that tooth is out, this kid was jumping up and down. He was hugging and thanking anybody he could find. And he walked out like this. He's like, yes! Like, it's gone! Like, the pain is gone! And that's how we can be with sin. Like, that's how we should, that's the approach. When God speaks to us and it wounds and we go, oh, yeah, let's, let's allow God's word to, to pierce us so that the healing can come when we repent. It'd be a shame to be afraid of the dentist and not to be, have the healing that the dentist is trained to provide. So let's pray and we'll open God's word together. Thank you, Lord, that you do speak to us to the end that we can be restored, so that we can be saved, so that we can be revived, Lord. And we need that work, each one of us. Thank you that you know what what is sin and you're able to show us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as you speak to our hearts today. And we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we would rejoice and you would rejoice over us as we submit to you, as we listen to you. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity just to praise you together to rejoice in Christ and his salvation, and to see him work in our midst is such a treasure. We love you, Lord, and praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no hope for the wicked, but there's hope for every sinner who repents and trusts in Christ. And we see that that hope of salvation, it's undimmed in death. Last week we talked about Stephen, how he was uh, the first martyr in the church. He was stoned. Um, for proclaiming Christ. He did great wonders in his name and people were unable to resist the wisdom with which he spoke. And he had been accused of blasphemy. 
even as Jesus was. And like his Savior before him, he used his last words to seek the Lord and to beg forgiveness for those who killed him. So we see in Stephen that same love, compassion, and strength that we see in Christ. And we come to now Acts 8, starting in verse 1, with Saul consenting to his death. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The death of Stephen marked a great uptick in the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And Stephen, he's described as falling asleep, quite a contrast to his enraged killers. And verse 1 mentions one of them by name, Saul, who would become Paul. And he was really the hitman, the muscle of the Jerusalem mob. He would go in and he would find Christians. He would enter their houses. He would drag them away to prison. So he was very um, enraged over Christ and sought to persecute the church. And this persecution, it prompted the church to scatter. It says, from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And it's likely that the Hellenists were primarily targeted, as we know that Stephen was, and Philip, who we'll be reading about, who went to Samaria. They were uh, Jews, but from a Greek background. So they spoke Greek, and they were not accepted among the, uh, well, because of Christ within the Sanhedrin. And I wonder if they remembered the promise that Jesus made before his ascension in Acts 1.8. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So this fulfillment came about in an unexpected way. It was persecution that scattered them out even as seed is scattered. And that's a good metaphor because it seems wherever they went, they sowed the good seed of God's word. And it found soft hearts. It found fruitfulness. Verse 2, it says that devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And that means Orthodox Jews. These were not Christians. These were devout Orthodox Jews who carried him to a burial, which shows the impact of Stephen's life and testimony that he had outside the church as well as within the church. And to touch a dead body would have meant being defiled. And to associate with a Christian, someone that was accused of blasphemy, that really says something about his testimony among that those people. Um, Saul, he was not mourning Stephen. He wished that all Christians would be as Stephen was. And he made havoc of the church. This word havoc, it's to lay waste or to ruin. It's kind of like... Uh, if a wild boar was to get in your vines and just thrash them, you know, tear, uproot them, trample them under their feet, that's what he was doing to the church. But the persecution in, in Jerusalem was only gain for the surrounding regions as the word of God came to them and new life came. Paul said something later in his life. Saul became Paul through Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.9, he said, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Paul, later, he became a believer, followed Christ, and he was imprisoned for it. But he said, even though I'm in chains, the word of God is not chained. 
Guess who is the key to spreading the word of God? God's people. And I love that. It doesn't matter if you're in chains. God's word cannot be chained. God's word will be spread. It will be spoken of. And so let's turn it loose in daily conversations. Let's be, uh, let God's word govern our decisions and choices. Let's put it into practice um, and not chain it up. Verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. I'm impressed by those scattered Uh, by that severe persecution. It says they went everywhere preaching the word, and then it says they preached Christ. And I like how those are connected. Jesus is the word who became flesh. And wherever they went, they preached the word. They preached the scripture, and the scripture speaks of Christ, the word of God. It could not be chained. They tried to stifle it. They tried to stamp it out in Jerusalem, but it spread. They couldn't stop the word of God from changing lives. And Philip one of the men who was chosen along with uh, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, he went to Samaria and preached there. And this is significant because the relations between the Jews and the Samaritans were openly hostile. They were hostile towards each other. Samaria was the old capital of the northern kingdom. In 4 BC, there was a temple built there. That was to rival the temple in Jerusalem. So the Samaritans worshiped there. They believed that Mount Gerizim was a holy site to this day. That is a, it's deemed a holy site by them. And so they worshiped there instead of going up to Jerusalem. So you think the Jews liked that? No, they definitely did not like it. It was abominable to them that you could possibly make a a replica or something to um, counteract or what is the word I'm looking for? Some sort of substitute for the real thing. That's what they were doing in Mount Gerizim. Uh, The woman at the well mentions that. They kept the Torah, but they ignored the Mishnah. They ignored the verbal and the rabbinic teachings of the Torah. So again, you have a divide there. They were descendants of Jews who intermarried with people of the land and therefore viewed as Gentiles, seen as outsiders. Jesus was even accused of being a Samaritan in John 8:48 by Jews who hated him they said do we not rightly say that you are a samaritan and have a demon so we see they weren't getting along with each other but this is where philip goes he brought the gospel the text says multitudes of people listened to him and the things that he said were confirmed by the things that he did there were miracles done people had demons cast out of them he the people were paralyzed and lame they were healed And verse 8 says, there was great joy in that city. And you'll find where the word of God takes root and is fruitful, what joy comes to those who receive. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Not everyone was happy about Philip bringing the gospel to Samaria. There was a man there, Simon, 
practiced sorcery. Some refer to him as Simon Magus. He previously wielded great influence over the people. He astonished them by the things that he did uh, due to his practice of witchcraft. We're not told specifically of the things that he did. There's a lot of fables attributed to him in secular history. Uh, there's no need to really theorize beyond what Scripture says plainly. He, he amazed them. He astounded them. What he did is really secondary to the fact that he had great influence and control over the people. And they all gave him heed. It says from the least to the greatest. They all thought he's the power of God. If you want to see the power of God at work, Simon's the one. And when Philip came, it had said they all gave him heed. So he dismantled this cult following and Simon himself began to look into it. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So a multitude of Samaritans believed. They were baptized. Simon was amazed by the things that Philip did. And it would have taken quite a bit to amaze this guy because he he wasn't just a trickster. He wasn't, uh, now there may have been some tricks associated or some sleight of hand, but he was involved in demonic power. He had real power, supernatural power. But he recognized the things that Philip did were way beyond his ability. I'm reminded of um, Pharaoh's magicians. If you remember, during the Exodus, they were able to imitate several of the things that Moses did. But at a point, they admitted, this is the finger of God. This is going beyond what our we have power to do. Like, this is beyond us. This is God now. And Simon knew of spiritual power. He realized this power that he saw in Philip, the changes that he saw in people was beyond his own. There's a reality here that I cannot deny. And he believed. He was baptized by Philip. I like what Matthew Henry said concerning his apparent conversion. He says, prodigals, when they return, must be joyfully welcomed home, though we cannot be sure but that they will play the prodigal again. It is God's prerogative to know the heart. The church and its ministers must go by a judgment of charity. We must hope the best as long as we can. So just because he has this demonic background as a sorcerer, he can be saved too. There was hope for Simon if he would repent and come to Christ, and he believed. On the basis of that confession of faith, he was baptized and he followed Philip. So he didn't just get baptized and was on his, on his way. He hung around and he was involved in the ministry to some extent. I believe it's instructive in the parable of the sower when we talk about the heart that the sower scattered the seed on many kinds of ground, right? The footpath, ground that in time proved to be stony and and full of thorns and good ground. It's not for the sower of the word of God. It's not for the one who scatters the seed of God's word to determine if the ground is the right kind of ground to grow. It's the job of the sower to sow. It's time that will reveal. The the parable is not speaking about primarily the effectiveness of God's word. God's word is good seed. When it comes into contact with good ground, it will always eventually be fruitful because that's what it does. It's like if you have good seed and you have the right conditions, you can grow something. Wrong conditions, it's not going to grow. 
So what appears to be good soil, you can look and say, well, I'm going to sow just in that little spot. But it could be filled with stones. It could be that shallow soil. Or you could even scatter among something that appears stony, but there can be some good ground there. So it's not for the sower to decide where to scatter, but wherever you go to be scattering the word. And that's what we see Philip doing. Based upon appearances, the idolatrous idolatrous Samaritans were not good soil. They weren't where you would think you would have a revival in following Christ. But that's exactly what happened when the word of God was scattered there. God forgive me when I have withheld good seed because I determined the ground to be resistant. Because I think it's going to be offensive or someone's, no, they're not going to listen to it. Why scatter it there? Well, do you think Saul of Tarsus was good ground if you looked at him and you saw the things he was doing? No way. That would have been the last person you would have expected to receive it. But in time, he did receive it. And the things that Stephen said before his death, I believe, had a great impact on his life. When we withhold good seed, we cannot expect fruit. So let's scatter that seed. Make sure it's the word of God. It will be fruitful in time. Acts 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is cool. It was reported to the apostles in Jerusalem that the Samaritans had received the word of God. And in response, Peter and John were sent from Jerusalem to go to Samaria. And this is quite a change in John. Remember his suggestion in Luke 9, 52, when he said, he and his brother, when they did not receive Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven as Elijah did and consume them? Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. Now he's going there to pray with them, to acknowledge the fact that God is moving, the word of God is being established in Samaria. And they prayed with them so they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, it says that at this point, the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. This coming upon or baptism with the Holy Spirit, it's seen many times in the book of Acts. It's a filling with the Spirit promised to all those who are born again. Jesus commissioned his followers to baptize people in the name of the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for whatever other reason, maybe because they were Samaritans and uh, Philip just wasn't quite sure how this should work, he only baptized them in the name of Jesus. So the text tells us that, that he just baptized them in the name of Jesus. And then the apostles came, laid their hands on them, and they too received the Holy Spirit in fullness. In New Testament, we read of many times when the Holy Spirit was received when hands were laid. The Holy Spirit comes upon people sometimes without the laying of hands. So it's not that there is some special um, power always required, or it's some sort of formula or um, rite that must be observed for the filling with the Holy Spirit. We do read in Acts 9.17, Ananias, he laid his hands on Saul. His blindness was healed, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 19.6, Paul laid his hands on disciples, and they were filled with the Spirit, evidenced by speaking in tongues. Paul also wrote in 2 Timothy 1.6, 
He said, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So the laying on of hands is, is scriptural. It's done. It's not always a requirement, of course, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't trust the hands that are laid on us. We trust God to fulfill his word. And sometimes he uses hands to do that. We know that the, the word promises the gift of the Holy Spirit is for us, for our children, and to many as our Lord calls in Acts chapter 2. Verse 18, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Simon made a profession of faith to follow Jesus. He was baptized. It says he continued with Philip. He heard him preach. He saw him do things, but he longed for power. And here he sees this power that he's like, I want that power for myself. And as he watched them and he watched Peter and John lay hands on people and he witnessed um, a transformation and evidence of the Spirit that, that was undeniable, he wanted that for himself and he offered money for the gift of God. And he said, give me this power that whoever I lay hands on, they too will receive the Holy Spirit. And instantly, Peter rebuked him through the Spirit, discerning his heart, that his heart was not right in this request. To attempt to buy something from God with money, it's as, a, as offensive as offering a few dollars to, to um, make up for the shedding of Christ's blood on Calvary. It's the same thing. When God has offered a gift and you're going to pay him for it, that is very offensive. And so he rebuked him openly. No amount of money can warrant or obtain the gifts that God freely gives to those who repent and trust in him. You know the word simony. Have you ever heard that? That is an allusion to Simon, which means using religion as a means of gain. And so that's where that word comes from. Where he saw it, this following of Christ says, wow, this is the next thing. You know, I've been following these lesser gods for all this time. Now that I'm following this other, the new God that I've just learned about through Jesus, man, think of the income I could get. Think of this new potential market that I have. And so, rightly rebuked. And Peter addresses him as someone heading to hell who's saying, your money's going with you. Uh, and he exhorted him to repent. And get what he says. And pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Reading this struck me. God doesn't have to forgive us anything. He's under no obligation as if like, well, I, because you prayed in Jesus' name, now I've got to do exactly what you say. I'm kind of at the mercy of you and your prayers. Not at all. When it comes to salvation and forgiveness, we can, we can kind of be like kids who expect to receive a card and a cake and presents and a party because it's our birthday. You know, it's my birthday. I just expect this from God. 
if I sin and I and I say I'm sorry and repent, he has to forgive me, right? Like, I'm his child. Well, he says, and pray if pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart will be forgiven you. God delights to give gifts to his children. It's his will that we would be forgiven, but we do not deserve him. We don't deserve him. We don't deserve forgiveness. Simon's heart was not right before God. Peter perceived that he was poisoned with bitterness and bound by iniquity. He may have been born again. We don't know if he was born again genuinely or not. But his thoughts and his desires were not in alignment with the word of God. They were not uh, true to a new nature. The way he was thinking and the way that he was acting was not showing that he was truly born again. He confessed faith in Jesus. He had been baptized, but sin was poisoning his thoughts. He was still held fast in the chains of sin. And the only hope he had, which is the only hope we have, is to repent, to acknowledge our sin, and to fall upon the mercy of Jesus. We make a mistake if the application of this passage is just to debate whether Simon was saved or not. Because we all, as genuine believers, can share much in common with him. Because among us, who can claim that our hearts have always been right in the sight of God? I cannot make that claim. That my thoughts have always been as God's thoughts are, in purity and holiness. No. That my desires have always been upright and without sinful desire or greed. Certainly not. Could you please turn to Hebrews 12, 14 through 17? We have this example here for us. which the discerning must take to heart. <laughs> Hebrews twelve fourteen. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." The writer of Hebrews, he wrote for people to examine themselves to ensure they walked in peace with one another and holiness. He says, without holiness, you're not seeing God. Without holiness, you cannot know God. So the thing to ask is, if the Prince of Peace, if Jesus, he's become my peace, if I will not pursue peace with others, how can I say he dwells within me? That's incompatible, right? If Jesus... And God, they, God has made himself near to me. He's broken that middle wall of separation. If I am unwilling to pursue peace with others, I'm not walking in the Spirit as I ought, right? Unless our lives are marked with holiness, we can fall short of God's grace. Simon was poisoned by bitterness, and this text provides Esau as an example. Esau was the older brother of Jacob. He was the preferred son by his dad. 
His dad loved him. Under Because he was the firstborn, he had the birthright, which meant that the, gen, the genealogy would pass through his line. He also would get a double portion of an inheritance and a blessing that his dad delighted to give him. He intended to give it to him. But the character of Esau, it revealed he was unworthy to receive it because, it says, he was profane and a fornicator. And when it came right down to it, the, the longing of his flesh for food was more important for a meal. He traded his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, I've had some good lentil soup in my life, but I would to, to trade your birthright, your right of birth, for, for a meal, it just shows a total bankruptcy of character. When the opportunity came for the blessing, Esau wanted that. He wanted the blessing. He had already given up his birthright. But when the blessing came, he was unworthy to receive it. It had been given to someone else. And it said he cried. He sought it diligently with tears. He cried because he wanted to be blessed, but he would not repent. And it was shown because of his hatred and murder towards his brother. And he says, when my dad's away, I'm going to kill him. Right? So he says, watch out, people. Esau is given to us as an example. We as children of God, God has a great birthright for us. Right? We have heaven. We have the spirit of God within us now. We have great blessings in this life and beyond. And he says, don't fall short of the grace of God. By the grace of God, not because you deserve to be blessed or deserve to have this eternal inheritance do you receive, but because God wants to lavish it upon you. But walk worthy of it. Because if you're not walking worthy of it and you do not repent, then you stand to lose. Not talking about losing your salvation, but if you're not, if, if your life is not in agreement with holiness, then that should be a warning to you, as it was for Simon. He saw the power of God as a means for gain. We're told to desire spiritual gifts, but let's examine the motive in asking for spiritual gifts. Do you want power for yourself to achieve your ends, or will you receive and use all that God chooses to give for his glory? And people assume, moving on further, if they can operate in a spiritual gift, well then, they must be right with God. But to ascertain spiritual health, it's a much better uh, litmus test to say, are the works of the flesh being evidenced in my life or the fruit of the Spirit? Because there's been many gifted people, spiritually gifted people, who have ended up as Esau. History is littered with them. And there were murderers like Saul of Tarsus who repented, were born again, and their lives were marked with faithfulness to God and holiness. If we will be free of sin, we must acknowledge our bitterness. We have to say, Lord, it's there. I've tried to get rid of it, but I can't. I need you to cleanse me and to break these chains that I've been struggling against. Back to Acts 8, starting in verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. 
based on Simon's response, it seems Simon was not immediately keen to humble himself before God in repentance, but he was glad for Peter to pray that he could escape the consequences of his sin. Oh, well, I don't want any bad thing to happen to me. Pray for me. Simon needed to pray for himself. He needed to repent himself. Peter's, Peter could have prayed for him. I'm sure he did. But they wouldn't have been very effective prayers if Simon was stubborn in his refusal to repent. Because God is not going to repent for you. He is not going to believe for you. Even if Jesus had been standing there, he could not have repented for him, right? Simon needed to repent himself. He needed to humble himself. Now, the cool thing is, we can't even do that except God help us. And God will help everyone who humbles himself before him. That's the glorious thing. God's always telling us to do things, commanding us to do things we in ourselves cannot do. We can't blame God when we're not doing it, though. (laughs) When we refuse to do it, we say, Lord, I am totally against repenting. You're just going to have to force me. Well, he's not going to force you. But may his love compel you to consider and to repent. So, my friends, God is not keeping you back from repenting. You're the one that God will hold accountable for your sin and your unbelief and your refusal to repent. God will hold you accountable, not himself, but he will help you. He will cause you to do those things when we cry out to him. We make the mistake sometimes of seeking power for our flesh to do what God wants to do instead of walking in the Spirit. So John and Peter, they testified, they preached the word as they went to Jerusalem in many Samaritan villages, and great joy was brought to all those who believed. They were enabled to do this through the Spirit who dwelt within them. God fulfilled his word through willing people. A good example of this is seen with the children of Israel coming back from bondage in Babylon. If you could turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, like Simon, God's people had been bound in iniquity. For many years they had departed the living God and served idols. And for their sin, God sent prophets to correct them and to instruct them in the way they should go and warn them, like, you're heading to destruction. You're heading to ruin. Wake up. And the people of God, you know, pushed aside. The people of God pushed aside the prophets he sent. That was a a big part of what Stephen's address was to the Sanhedrin. But I want you to take a look at all the times God says that he's going to do something. When he says, I will. So it's, it's nothing they could do, right? They were defeated. They were taken to Babylon. They were in captivity for 70 years. And this is what God said to his people when he would bring them out in Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take from take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Not everyone that went to captivity in Babylon came out of Babylon. Many were content to remain in Babylon. Considering the the size of the northern and the southern kingdom, there was only a fraction of people that ended coming out because they chose to. 
they decided to come out. And But look at the things God said, I will. And when God says he will do it, guess what? He will do it. They couldn't muster this up. They couldn't gather themselves from all the nations where they had been scattered. But God said, I will. And I'm going to wash you. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my ways. It's not because you are ready or prepared or strong in yourself. I will do it. And his people had a part to play in cooperating with that, didn't they? He did the gathering. The people did the walking. God helped them to walk, but they still had to physically leave Babylon and return to the land that God had promised them. The Jews were keen to do the works of God. Remember when they asked Jesus that? They said, how shall we do the works of God? And Jesus distilled it to a single point in John 6.29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Unless you believe in Christ, unless you're born again, you cannot do anything for God. This is the first thing. This is really the primary and only thing. And once this is done, and you believe Jesus, you have trusted in him, you can do the works of God. Whatever he calls you to do. Wherever he calls you to go. Because he will do it. He's the faithful one. Now I have a few verses from the Minor Prophets. Um, good, to, they're, they're, I guess, easier to remember because of the verses. So I'll just, I'll read them to you and, and I encourage you to look them up. But here are some things that God's, God wants to see in your life. Things that he, you can't do, but He will do in you when you believe in Him. So Habakkuk 2, 4. It says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him but the just shall live by his faith. Walking in faith, can you do that by yourself? I cannot do that. I need God to help me. I need him to cause me to live by faith. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Any guesses for the last one? 10.12. Hosea 10.12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. These are things that, that God wants in your life. Do we want these things in our lives? A to-do list, it's convenient, right? We used to have this... Uh, during the summer holidays especially, my mother would make this long list. And it's like, okay, it was kind of like drafting your team. You get to choose your chores. So, you know, you choose the first one, then your brother does the second, and then your sister, and then you get to go again. So you, you pick two or three things on the list, and you uh, are, are choosing very selfishly when you do that. Um, so very convenient to have everything. This is what I need to do. You can make a spiritual to-do list, and there's no way that you can do one of them through trying to do it. You can't do the first thing. But once we believe in Christ and we're born again, he begins to do things in us, and we need to cooperate with him. And the way we do it is through repentance when we realize that there's sin inside of us. There's, there's sinfulness in our thoughts and in our hearts. Now, 
If we don't see evidence that Jesus is walking in us through faith, humility, and brokenness, we too need to repent because it's time to seek the Lord. It's time for that. It's always time for that, right? It's not like it was time for the Jews to seek the Lord just because it's them. No, it's time to seek the Lord. We need to seek him today. We need to seek him always. If God's word has pierced you, it's for your healing. It's for your revival. That's why God does it. And, and I love that he says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. In that order. I'm not talking about the killing and wounding. I'm saying, so he kills, but he makes alive. So the end of it is life. Okay? And he also wounds. Sometimes he, he'll say something that we're like, whoa, that's a bit offensive. That's a bit hurtful. But in the end, it's for our healing. And so may God's word have that effect on our hearts. So on the first week of the month, we celebrate communion together to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes in obedience to him. And on the night he was crucified, he instituted the practice of communion. So every Christian who has placed their trust in Christ is invited and welcomed and and really commanded to come to his table. And we don't do so because we're worthy or because we are um, righteous in ourselves, but we acknowledge that he has done a work in us. We have been born again. His the, the broken bread shows us the body that was broken on Calvary for our sins. And his and the the cup shows his blood poured out through which he sprinkled many nations. We're not worthy in ourselves to be forgiven, to be a partaker of eternal life, but God gives us this and infinitely more by his grace. And I want to just draw your attention to one thing that happened on the night um, when Jesus died on the cross or the afternoon. It says in Matthew, when he breathed his last, in chapter 27, verses 52 and 53, it says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So I ask you, what power did those dead bodies have in the grave? to rise from the dead. Did they, during that moment, muster up some strength that was a bit latent? Suddenly, I don't know, they just got their second wind and climbed out of the tomb? No, they had no ability to rise. They were dead. There was nothing going on. But Jesus, through his sacrifice, their coming to life, their revival is a picture of us. Really? Those saints, they were, they were in tombs, but after Jesus rose from the dead, they were walking around. They appeared to many. And may God do so in our hearts too. We have to admit that we are like those lying senseless in the tombs. We have no capacity to raise ourselves up. We have no strength to break the chains that bind us, that God has pointed out. We, we cannot do it. It's impossible. But through Christ, all things are possible to those who believe. And we have believed at one point, but may we believe today that God is able and willing and and shall do this when we repent and trust in him. I can pray for you, but really, we all need to pray for ourselves. In a sense, we need to repent ourselves before a holy God. And God will cause those chains to fall. He will cause us to be cleansed. 
We have to kneel sometimes before we can rise to our feet with a new heart. So praise God for his word, that he does pierce us to restore us, to revive us. If I could please have the team come up. They'll lead us in a song. And as they're leading us in this song, I encourage you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to come forward and take of the bread and the cup. And once we've all received and we're ready, then I will just lead us in a prayer. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Thank you for driving the darkness away. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the chains that have held us fast, perhaps for our entire lives, and we've not been able to break them. No matter how much we've prayed or how much we've tried, because we haven't um, done the first thing. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to repent. And may we come to you as, as a beggar who is desperate, not as a spoiled child who, who's demanding. Lord, you are God. You are holy. And thank you for sending Jesus to redeem us and to give us new life, to make us holy in your sight. And you have said in your word, be holy for I am holy. And Lord, forgive us when our attitudes and our thoughts and our decisions have not been alignment with our new nature, but they have been according to the flesh and they've been according to our will rather than yours. So Lord, I pray for each one that you would minister to our hearts, that there would be revival, there would be restoration, there would be rejoicing, Lord, even as in the city of Samaria, when your word was preached and received, there was great joy in that city. Lord, may there be great joy in every heart this morning when we repent and turn to you. Thank you, Lord, that you make all things new, that you wash us clean and you set us free, and he who is freed by Jesus is free indeed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.